Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Our guest today was called to the Bar of England and Wales in 1976, took silk in 1997, became a recorder of the Crown Court in 2000, and was elevated to the full-time role of circuit judge in 2017. He is well known among his peers as a fearless and outspoken, as well as entertaining, advocate and a fair-minded judge. His work as a barrister included participating in over 100 murder trials, targeted assassinations, salt poisoning, and Britain's largest Ponzi fraudster. As a recorder, he sat at the Old Bailey, and as a Crown Court judge, he presided mostly in Luton and St Albans, dealing often with drug-related gang trials. He retired from the circuit bench in August of this year, and his book, Nothing Like the Truth, The Trials and Tribulations, was recently released. We extend a very warm welcome to his honour, Nigel Lithman, QC. Uh, welcome, Nigel. Thank you very much for joining us today. First of all, many congratulations on the publication of your book, Nothing Like the Truth. Uh, could, could you start by telling us what the book's about and yeah. um, why you wrote book it? is an honest account of my life through the courts, through me being as a, uh, a junior silk and then on the bench. And uh, it's in order for me to tell the truth about what goes on in the courts and the criminal justice system. I've seen it from all sides, both sides of the bench and uh, in front and behind it. Appeared in a hundred murder cases whilst I was in silk. And I thought there was a lot of truth to be told and a lot of controversy to be dealt with. And I wanted to do it in my voice and in my funny style. And I think that's what I've done. Well, from the reviews I've read so far, that seems to be so. And, and the Good. book must have been um, some time in the making, I take it. Well, the book actually was uh, during the lockdown period. It was about four months. I was surprised because it was the first time I've written a book. I've written plenty of articles. Uh, I was surprised that there was only a, a relatively limited amount of time that you could concentrate and do it during the day. So it was two or three hours a day for four months. But after that, the agony of the publication began. And then, of course, the dedication as to trying to promote it and sell it, which continues even till today. I should think there's some interesting lessons to be learned there from anybody who wishes to write a book apart from anything else. Yeah. So you deal in the book with some of the perplexing difficulties you've encountered. It's clear from anybody who practices the law that underinvestment in the court structure and the criminal justice system has been taking place now for a long time under successive governments. So it's more than a party political issue. When you were yeah. chairman of the Criminal Bar Association, you took on the Minister of Justice, Chris Grayling at the time. Would you like to tell yeah. us something about that? What you set out to achieve, sure. what you actually achieved? Sure. <clears throat> yeah. Well, when I took, uh, when I became chairman of the Criminal Bar Association, vice chairman in 2013, chairman 
in 2014, it's right that the criminal bar had had enough. That was absolutely clear. And in fact, uh, it's repeated today. The same, it's the same situation today. When I say the criminal bar, although I was chairman of that, it was the same feelings within the solicitor side of the profession as well. Enough was enough. And the state of remuneration was well known. And the key figure that was used then was earning 46 pounds a day, which is just, of course, unacceptable for anybody and everybody. And with that in mind, uh, Chris Grayling then made it clear that he wanted to cut the legal aid bill by another 220 million pounds. I made it clear that that was unacceptable and simply told him, because I was prepared to meet with him and did, and simply told him, and there was no question that he would believe it, uh, that we would go out on strike and we would bring the court process to a halt one way or another. And I wasn't bluffing, I made it abundantly clear. We would do that in progressive ways, first of all, with a half day strike and then a day and then two days and so on. And it was after a day and a half that uh, the, the best way to put it without being too immodest is that he hoisted the white flag and said en enough is enough and then said that he would no longer do it. Now that was a way to stop further denuding of the, the remuneration. But what I expected and hoped would happen was that you would then go on an upward curve in order to try and increase people's uh, earnings. But that didn't happen. And I went off to the bench for four years. And when I've come back, it's just deja vu. It's the same thing happening all over again. And I think, and I'm sure that the leaders of both sides of the profession will make it clear to the uh, Minister of Justice that this is unacceptable. Yes, I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that the criminal bar is in greater jeopardy than ever at present. I mean, just recently, we've seen judges complaining. For example, a case was adjourned the other day because the Crown was unable to bring a prosecutor. Well, if you implement an overseer system in which you see 15% of your workforce leaving over a period of two or three years, what else is going to happen? They, they simply aren't going to be able to un unman the court, not man the court. And that is on top of every other issue that they have. And it spreads from the lavatories at Southwark Crown Court, which have been in the same state of chaotic disrepair for 20 years, right through to the backlog of 60,000 cases, that there is no prospect that they are able to cope with these while this is going on. Yep. And it is something that well, I, I felt strongly in 2014, and I feel just as strongly today, and I'm having a chat with the Criminal Bar Association on Friday, and hope I can lend my support, because it does help if ex-chairs of the Criminal Bar Association or any association come forth and say they're prepared to roll up their sleeves and do what it takes to help. And that's what I am prepared to do. And, and I do have views actually as to how there can be a, a solution to these things as well. It, it's extremely difficult now, isn't it? As you say, um, I was going to come on to the buildings and the facilities because they affect everybody yeah. from judges, barristers, witnesses, victims, and jurors. And, uh, 
the system plainly can't go on like this, can it? But there's something happening. Yeah. Well, I I was happy to write to the manager of the court where I sat, St. Albans, to invite her to come with me and celebrate the second anniversary of the death of a fly that had been sitting on a window ledge on the first floor in, uh, in stairwell five. But my point was, if this fly is celebrating its second anniversary and you can't cope with that, how are you going to be able to cope with COVID? And I said, will you provide me with uh, Perspex? And the answer was no. So I bought my own. I said, will you provide the witness box with Perspex? And they said, no. I said, that's fine. And in that case, witnesses will not be giving their evidence from the witness box. I'm prepared to, to live for the, uh, for the bar and for the criminal justice system, but I'm not prepared to die for it. And, uh, and, th and that's how I dealt with that. But top to bottom, the system is rotten, it has to be said. Well, those are really clear examples, of course. But even before the pandemic, court centres were being closed and the backlog of cases was accruing. I mean, you've said now 60,000 or so. Situation now is far worse and the pandemic is being blamed. In your view, is that another example of nothing like the truth? I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it is. It is nothing like the truth because what it does is a as a matter of convenience is to try and shift the blame in a, in a political way from the realities of what's happened and to really whitewash the fact that what took place for more than a year before the pandemic was wholly unacceptable and unaccountable, which was the cutting of four court sitting days for all criminal courts. The members of the public aren't entirely stupid. What they would expect is a court building, if it's got six courts to sit with six courts, on five days a week with six judges, one per court. If, if a particular court is gonna sit for 20 days as the public expects, and then suddenly they're told you can only sit for 15, what is going on? It's just ridiculous. I'm, as will become quite clear from, from the book, I'm the first person to applaud any system that gives me uh, holidays for doing nothing, absolutely, but, of course, there is a right to be an outcry as to why that why that's happening. And so it's bad luck that they would say that the uh, government then finds itself with a pandemic that shows that their foolish their foolish policy of 2018-19 is exacerbated by what happened in 2020-21. We've already touched on why this backlog is uh, accruing and growing. It's because you haven't got the criminal advocates, solicitors or, or barristers to man the courts. And so how do you see this backlog of 60,000 being tackled, if at all? Do you, do, you, do you think prosecutions will be dropped in many cases? Well, what's happening is unacceptable in the sense that when I was sitting in court, I would be a adjourning cases in 2020 through till 2022. Now, if you tell a defendant you are entitled to bail, which he or she is, and granted bail, which happens, 
and you say, oh, and by the way, you have got to do two things. One, stay out of trouble for the next two years. And two, you must turn up for your trial in two years' time. What are the chances of that being uh, complied with? I'd have thought, as it turns out to be, pretty minimal. So that's an unacceptable system, and you've got to do what you can to make it better. And there are ways you can make it better. One is through remote hearings, and two is through remuneration. I was going to ask you about technology, and so I think that brings us naturally to it. The, the other thing, of course, is you're going to have difficulty with witnesses' memories a couple of years down the line. Absolutely. There's no, there's no way that anything is true other than justice delayed is justice denied for every accountable reason. Why should rape victims have to wait for two years to be giving their evidence? What are the chances that witnesses will be able to be found and stay on side in order to come forward? Why should your son or daughter who is wrongly accused of a trial wait two years in order to be uh, heard? These are all the wholly unacceptable consequences of what takes place. But let's let's get on to let's get on to technology, Barry. I'm I'm particularly concerned that I'm not being funny. My book is funny. <laughs> <laughs> we can we're being too serious. I can see. But I was going to say it's a very odd mix. I I can try and in, inject some humour, but this is not a funny situation. It's not a humorous subject. Absolutely agree. Assuming that appropriate investment is made, and that's a big assumption, I know. How yeah. far do you think technology is? going to be able to assist with this backlog? I think enormously. Let's just put it into a context. In 2015, the bar was being encouraged to move into the world of remote hearings and digital hearings. And for instance, somebody, one of the presiders, I forget which one it was, was of the view that we must get used to the idea that hearings are held with, uh, from our uh, living rooms and from our offices. And we will be entering the digital age in everything other than criminal trials, which is too interactive, it is said, and it's a, it seems to be accepted. It is too interactive a process to be done remotely. But everything else, right through to sentencing, preliminary hearings can be done remotely. And if that happens, then you free up the courts to hold the trials. You provide the advocates with the ability to do more than one hearing from their home or their office in more than one court, because these are digital. You make the prisoners uh, happy because they will not have to bring their belongings, which they do with them, to the court in order possibly to shipped back to another court, which of course is something that, that, that happens. Remote hearings is a substantial, is an answer. It's not a substantial answer, but it's not minimal. It will make a, a decent difference. The second thing is remuneration. This is a nettle that has to be grasped. When HGV drivers were on strike and there was talk of improving the yards and showering facilities, Sharing facilities is not going to get people to drive HGV lorries. HGV drivers do that. In fact, 
what the, the amount of money they're seeking is so sounds so mouthwatering. I'm thinking of trying to get up into a cab myself. But notwithstanding that, you've got to try and encourage the lawyers back into the system. And they will only do that if you pay them more. And that seems to be an anathema for the government. You have saved 300 million pounds, I think it is, during the lockdown. You have said that there is to be a half a billion added to the legal aid budget by the government. Put this money into lawyers' fees and they will come back. Because whilst in my time, the figure that was the headline figure was £46. The figure that's come out from the Audit Council is that of £12,000 per year net in the first three years for those coming into the criminal justice system. They can't live on that money. That's no, quite and appalling, frankly, isn't it? And frankly, with their debts, they, they don't deserve to live on that money. Okay, thank you, um, Nigel. I wonder if finally we can turn to the subject of bullying of advocates in the courts. Uh, certainly when I first experienced the courts in the 1960s, there were fearsome judges who one wouldn't wish to appear before. Now, I sense that's not as bad now, but do you agree there are still too many instances of judges bullying advocates? Well, if there are any instances, which there are, then it is just wholly unacceptable. I mean, not everybody is a robust person who has been in the profession all of his life and is able to and is able to cope with that. These are people who are coming into the profession. And if they're going to be knocked about by a judge because of his own feelings of inadequacy, then that's wholly wrong. I mean, I've got a chapter in my book called Judgeitis. And I do I do enjoy it and think it's one of those that the that the criminal advocates will will really enjoy. In fact, can I just give you this extract from it? I asked, what are its symptoms? First is the temptation that certain judges find irresistible to shout at those that appear before them. In front of one judge at Southwark, I was always tempted to look around me when he spoke. Had he asked why, I would have replied, I was certain there must be a dog in the courtroom. Not that anyone would speak to a dog the way he barked at people. He once told me in the middle of a submission to sit down. I explained calmly that after 18 years, as one of Her Majesty's counsel, he could safely assume I knew when I should sit and when I should, sit and when I should stand. This was a moment for standing, and I'll continue to stand until it's time to sit. But that coming from me is something I'm prepared to do and to take someone on who is notoriously suffering from judge-itis. And I end the chapter by saying, you know who you are, stop it. And that is what they must do. It is unacceptable. Equally, I have seen cases of judges behaving appallingly where a member of the bar telephoned me for advice and I gave him advice I then had the judge ring me because he was concerned that he'd gone too far. He said I was anxious. He said he was anxious, I'm sorry, that this member of the bar would report him to the Lord Chancellor. I said, there's no need to be anxious about that. Let me, let me tell you straight away. He has reported you to the Lord Chancellor. You better think about what, what you're going to say to the Lord Chancellor. So it's unacceptable and it's got to stop. 
and people must try. And I know, of course, it's difficult. Of course, it's difficult. You've got people in, in your hierarchy that you can speak to in the same way as well-being. Well-being has got to be funneled through mentoring and uh, uh, an openness, which will actually rectify or help rectify these uh, weaknesses in our system. Well, thank you, Nigel. I'm, I'm sure every member of the bar and anyone connected with the courts would be thrilled to hear what you've had to say today. There's plenty Good. there for debate. And, they, can uh, always ring, they can always ring me and talk to me about it. Yes, if you've got a contact in any way you would like to give people? They can, uh, if, if they're on social media, they will see me um, on all of the channels and they can uh, privately message me on any of the channels. Thank you very much for talking to us today. You're very welcome, Barry. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Baines Law.